my name is Nicole Sparaza. I am a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area, and I'm honored to be your host for this limited series podcast in honor of Asian American Pacific Islander Month. As a quick roadmap, we'll be using some abbreviations throughout this podcast, one of which is APABA Colorado, which stands for the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Colorado, as well as SABACO, which is the South Asian Bar Association of Colorado. We will also be using other short terms such as APALSA, which is the Asian Pacific American Law Students Association, APDC, which is the Asian Pacific Development Center, and we will also be using other terms such as APA, which stands for Asian Pacific American, AAPI, or API, which is Asian American Pacific Islander, and BIOPIC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color. Welcome to the podcast. I am excited to have with me today Maha Kamal, who is a family law attorney who owns her own law firm, the Colorado Law Project here in the Denver metro area. And quite frankly, she's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. So Maha, thank you for taking the time to sit socially distanced across from me and have a conversation. Hi, Nicole. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I was really, I and you and I have talked about this before because mm-hmm. we're pretty good friends, but I just find you and your story and who you are just like fascinating to be honest with that's you. a compliment to call it fascinating <laughs> <laughs> i uh, i can't explain it to anybody so i just don't just all over the place oh i love it i you're an artist um you're a writer you're an attorney and a great one at that oh, well, you still take time to <laughs> donate to the community you're one of the only people i know who actually has a sliding scale mm-hmm. in your firm that's integrated within your firm to make sure that you're keeping in touch with and providing service to the community at large um obviously i'm a big fan of you i'm a big fan of you too nicole <laughs> this is probably why we're really good friends um i kind of want to talk a little bit about i know that you've been very involved in the denver bar association mm-hmm. and you've won a few awards in their arts and literature contest over the years but the most recent one um you wrote a piece about identity I did. Mm -hmm. And in it, you shared that you were disowned by your family. Yep. But and I think my favorite quote of that piece that you wrote, you said, while my parents may have disowned me, I didn't in turn disown my factional roots. Mm -hmm. I love that. Would you be willing to share with our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. And leading up to that? Yeah. Um, so I was born, I'm not going to start all, I'm, I'm starting with that, but I'm not going to tell you my whole biography. <laughs> I was born in Aurora, um, so Arapahoe County I'm very familiar with. And my parents are from Pakistan. You know, at the time that they immigrated, what was this, like 1980s? Mm-hmm. There's like nobody here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I got to recognize that that was the struggle for them. It's challenging. Um, I'm not sure why they moved out here. I think it was my father's job. Um, I was supposed to be born in Houston, where there's a really big, vibrant South Asian community. Um, But we settled here, and I was born here. And I think that that was the start of a very interesting journey, Um, Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, you're growing up with immigrant parents that are living in a predominantly white community, um, and they had their own struggles and challenges with that. You know, this expectation to assimilate, um, you know, just in trying even to integrate mm-hmm. into where they were in Aurora. Um, and now you're raising two girls. So I have one sister. 
Um, on top of that, two daughters. And you know what, South Asian communities, um, I think they struggle with gender, especially mm-hmm. with children. And, you know, girls get the, the worst end of that. Um, the short end of the stick. They do. They do, unfortunately. And you and I could talk for hours about that. But, um, you know, and they embrace that. It wasn't, that wasn't an issue ever. I never felt like, you know, being a daughter in their family was a shame. Mm-hmm. But I think it did present challenges for them. And they were caught in their own conflict of culture, which eventually spilled into onto me. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to deal with being like a first generation, ch- you know, kid of immigrants. And on top of that, struggling with my own parents, not able to figure out, you know, their identity and their place in this new community. Um, and it eventually fell apart. I, I don't know if fell apart would be a good word. I think it blew up um, yeah. in high school, you know, where I really want to have my own identity, mm-hmm. you know, and it just, it was too much. It was too much for them, I think. When you say that you wanted to have your own identity, was that from the pressures that were put on you of being, you know, or being the daughter of immigrants trying to um, reconcile both very different cultures and at the same time trying to figure out your likes and your interest Mm -hmm. and what was authentic to you? Yeah, I mean... You grew up in the 90s, uh-huh. you know, we were the post, you know, Cold War kids trying to figure it out. And it was such a time to be alive. I guess now I can say that in retrospect about my era. And yeah, I wanted, you know, I had all these dreams and all of these things that I wanted to be and express myself. And a lot of that really clashed with them, you know, and expectations of what they wanted their daughter to become. And, you know, for them getting married, having kids, you know, all the traditional things that are associated with um, the role of uh, women in many Asian cultures and communities, that hadn't changed with them, you know, but, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was hard. It was hard. And eventually I had to choose essentially. And it led to this huge falling out. And, you know, I hope, I don't wish that on anybody. I hope that never happens. I think it's very rare that that happens Mm -hmm. um but you know it does happen it happens especially in in situations where i think parents it's too much for them you know the immigration was too much for them having children here and not being able to deal with the dueling cultures was Mm -hmm. too much for them um but yeah i you know and um ever since then i've been trying to find my identity i think in a lot of ways um so it's been it's been quite a journey yeah, I mean, I I kind of, when you're talking, I think about what I dealt with when I was growing up and mm-hmm. how I tried to reconcile a lot of conflicting feelings and duties and obligations that I had as, you know, the model minority mm-hmm. or, and that model minority wasn't just expectations of the community, right? It was the expectations that I had within my family too, and the role that I had to have within my family. Right, right. And you know, you touch on something that I think any Asian American kid will know, and that is the double life. Correct. Okay, we all know it. And (laughs) you are very Asian, if you know what double life means, right? Like you go out and you have to have your American side, you Mm -hmm. know? And for me, that was, I like 
for me, that was trying to purchase a prom ticket so I could get out of my parents' <laughs> house to go to prom and I got caught and then I got grounded, you know, like, or drinking or trying pot for the first time or doing anything American associated, which is, you know, usually to very conservative Asian families could be, you know, look at these Americans, they're so out there and they're mm-hmm. outspoken and they don't have any shame and all this stuff, you know, but that's what you're touching on is this double life, right? And for a lot of kids, I think they manage somehow and they've got their peers mm-hmm. um, and their fellow immigrant friends, you know, kids of um, immigrants. And it's okay, but sometimes it gets to a point where, you know, it, it blows up and mm-hmm. it becomes a trauma. And that's unfortunately what happened in my case. Um, I didn't lose all my family. A lot of my family is really cool. But, you know, that was something that my parents just, for them, was the final straw. Like, they could not accept this idea that their daughter is American. Mm-hmm. And what what was that? I mean, I know that you talked a little bit about, you know, the expectation to get married and kind mm-hmm. of fall within that traditional gender role of being a female and being married. Right. Um, to what extent was it an expectation by by the time you're 20 you should be married or was it the gender roles what what it was everything everything. i mean it's all the taboo stuff that like hassan minaj and russell peters and we need by the way we need more south asian comedians that are women i really i would do it (laughs) if i if i wasn't in family law right now i would totally do stand-up i actually did for a hot minute when Did I was you? I was living in London my last year of law school and I got tied up with the BBC and like stand up comedy and it was it was a riot but it's a lot of work. Um, but getting back to your question, you know it's 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 hard because you've got this double life going on and you also kind of see the vulnerability of your parents mm-hmm. growing up and and how hard it is for them, right? And a lot of the things that they clutch onto are taboo here okay so like you know within my family not my I would say my like current generation like younger generations in my family don't hold on to this but like arranged marriages is no big deal there right it's commonplace practice marrying your cousins Mm -hmm. is commonplace practice right and so when you're the first kid to be born in the United States that's embarrassing you know Mm -hmm. how do you juggle that with your identity going into middle school going into high school and on top of that you know juggling these things that are totally normal to your parents and your family but are you know in many places even outlawed here Mm -hmm. you know and so that was the struggle that i think was the hardest for me is that i would show up to school and a part of me for so long i would say probably like end of elementary school through middle school and like you know most of high school I was like struggling to um in many ways kind of disown that myself like that part of my parents Mm. and that part of culture like Pakistani South Asian culture um because it was embarrassing and it wasn't mainstream and you know now it was different it was different yeah Mm -hmm. it was different like the food was different my mom spoke with an accent my my dad not so much but all of those things and I think you can relate right absolutely especially when you're going to predominantly white schools um, and it, like you said, it was the 90s. It was when, right. you know, Britney Spears and yeah, Jessica and Simpson and, <laughs> and more and all of, you know, it seemed like it was at least at the time, the only media that we saw were also 
not representative of what what oh, we I know. looked like. I know. I you know what? It was so funny. Don't ask me why, but I got my hands on one of those old Sears merchandise catalogs do you remember those from the 90s (laughs) yes everybody in there was white and (laughs) I didn't realize that that's what we accepted as 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 the norm Mm -hmm. and it makes sense you know the demographics or whatever but I think subconsciously that did create a battle within me even as a child to say well this doesn't my parents don't conform to that and I need to conform to that so I felt like there was this ongoing battle which kind of resulted in the double life Um, for a very long time. And that was my reality. I think many Asian American kids probably can relate to that. But Mm -hmm. I think what sets me apart is when that turned into the family dysfunction and trauma and led to that disownment. That's, That's, I think, the extreme end of things. But, you know, I took it for what it was. And I honestly don't think I would be where I am today if it hadn't been for this trajectory. I can't even imagine, though, because not not having the support um, of your parents mm-hmm. after high school, I can't imagine what that would look like or what that would be like, or how did you find your footing? Well, it was a lot of therapy, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> I got to give a shout out to University of Colorado Boulder. So that's where I... Um, I was at my first year of college when all of this went down um, and they were amazing. I mean, financial um, assistance and um, my financial advisor was so supportive, Um, but really the counseling department, I don't think they'd ever seen anything like my case before. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're saying that they hadn't seen like a a case like yours Mm -hmm. before, I think you're referring to what you and I have talked about is being a minority within a minority, right? right? Because right. most people will conform to some degree, right? right? And reconcile right. those differences between the cultures and not have this cutoff right. that it's, you experienced. This yeah, this is, and you know, I think it, when you're pushed that far out as a minority within a minority, which is a good way of putting it, um, you start exploring other parts that have been considered taboo or shut off, even to your parents in their culture, right? And so, you know, I grew up Muslim, for example, and, you know, Islam is the predominant religion in Pakistan. That was one of the reasons why Pakistan and India split, right, was um, over the Muslim Congress and Indian National Congress. Um, And so I never thought twice growing up, like, who are the minorities within a Muslim country? right? That's going to be your atheists. That's going to be your agnostics and your Hindus and your Christians. And so when I was cast out of my family and what was the majority, I started finding these people and they became my friends and my family. Hmm. And so I think that's a great way of putting it is the minorities within the minorities. And I think in any Asian culture, right, community, there's a minority within the minority, Mm -hmm. whether it's Korean, Japanese, Thai, Indian, Pakistani, there is a minority within a minority. And I guarantee you those people are the coolest of the <laughs> entire place. So I did go on that, um, that journey. I, you know, with Islam, um, you know, I decided I, that wasn't for me. So, you know, in law school, actually, my last year of law school, I discovered um, the ex-Muslim community uh, Europe when I was at the United Nations working at the Lebanon Tribunal. And they're the coolest people. They're interesting. They've got stories. Um, 
you know you've I, got stories oh i know i know like <laughs> i think people look at me and I, they're like what are who are ex-muslims and i said they exist and they exist in pakistan they exist in asia mm-hmm. they exist in europe they exist here in north america um but again minorities within minorities so um Eventually, I actually settled on humanism. So, you know, uh, I think it took me about, gosh, almost 20 years. Um, But I would say, you know, I'm an active member of the um, some some big organizations here. And and I think humanism kind of encompasses everybody. And it would encompass my parents, too, Mm. you know, just respecting them and their beliefs um, and where they come from. And I don't hate my parents. I want to make that very clear. I, I think it took me 20 years, but I really, I think I understand where they were coming from mm-hmm. and how hard it was for them. And at the end of the day, you and I know as family lawyers too, that there's no manual for parenting, right? No. And some people just, they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened here is they just couldn't do it. Um, and I don't hate them for that, but I, I think that's kind of what brought me ultimately to humanism is that, you know, live and let live in so many ways. It's interesting that you talk about that. And I agree with you. There's no manual mm-hmm. to parenting. There's no manual on how to do it, the right way to do it. A lot of it is instinctual. I think of it kind of as, you know, not everybody is equipped to be the best parent, right. but that doesn't mean that they're not doing the best that they can. Right. Regardless right. of whether or not the best that they can is enough. enough. Or I 100% agree. And, you know, that's, it's hard. Parenting is hard. And, um, you know, I honestly think it's because of my life history and my story that I eventually fell upon family law. I don't think that was a coincidence, but it's really been eye-opening. And I think through my own experiences, it's really helped me help my clients. But I agree with you. I really don't think that there's one guide to parenting. And, you know, people are trying to do the best that they can. I I, I think it's, I don't even know if it's possible not to love your kid in some way, but it may not be the way that that child needed the love Mm -hmm. or the circumstances, you know, that presented themselves. So I want to know a little bit more about humanism because, Mm -hmm. and I, I would guess that our listeners do too, because it's not something that you hear about every day. You don't, but I think a lot of people are humanists and they just don't know it. Mm -hmm. Um, So humanism isn't, isn't an organized religion. It's, it's very philosophical in history and in nature. And I, you know, I, if I could sum it up, it's, it's, it really is live and let live. It does have liberalism roots to it, you know, um, really putting front and center human rights and individual rights, which many, interestingly enough, I don't know if all Asian communities would be, um, would jive with that either because they're so community based and it's not about the individual. Um, But, you know, within the context of like modern day, you know, Western lifestyles and democracies, you know, it is a focus on individual rights. Um, You know, within the United States, the humanist movement is really focused on secularism, Mm-hmm. I would say that would be a great way to define it, you know, separation of religion and state um, in terms of their the litigation that's out, you know, going on with these organizations. But it's also inviting. I mean, you can be a Christian humanist. You can be a Muslim humanist. They don't have to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. But the focus is, is to, you know, the general understanding is that you live and let live. You know, that everybody has their own different beliefs, so long as your beliefs are not affecting or harming others. Understanding that everybody has fundamental basic rights, that Mm -hmm. we can coexist and we can live together. And I think that that humanism is also 
an interesting approach to family law. It is. That's a very interesting observation, counsel. <laughs> I, I think that you're right. I think that you're right. Yeah. And I would venture to say that that's also one of the qualities that set you apart from other family law attorneys is this different perspective that you bring and this level of empathy and understanding that you bring to the table in making sure that your clients feel heard and making sure that your clients feel comfortable. And even if their primary language isn't English, even if English is their second language, I think that that humanist approach probably is lends itself to allowing the person across the table from you to feel understood. I hadn't thought about that, but you might be right. Um, <laughs> you know, I yeah, I think that humanism has, the reason I loved it so much is that, you know, it, it, it lets you just be you, you know, and also not have expectations of others, except, you know, the basic human rights mm -hmm. expectations, right? And it also invites you to be curious, right? And so that's something... Um, that I try to remind myself every day in practice is be curious. Mm -hmm. um, instead of forming judgments, ask, say, you know, that question, say more. You know, mm -hmm. even if you have doubts about what somebody's saying or a client's saying or opposing counsel or whoever, just say, you know, I'd like if you could say a little bit more about what you mean um, and get a really good understanding of where they're coming from. Um, I think that that's uh, critical to, to any case to, to move it along or to settle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I feel like that's um, also something that maybe I feel like coming from a place of curiosity and asking questions would clarify a lot of situations that maybe English as a second language speakers, you know, they might not necessarily intend for phrases or words to come out the way that they did. But by asking more questions and coming from a place of curiosity, I think that you're kind of able to fully understand who they are, what they're saying, and give them more or less the space to be able to talk. Sure. You and I probably have a different lens anyways that I don't judge, um, especially clients or and really anybody's in a case um, that's from a different background or has English as a second language. I don't take everything literally anyway, um, because I, you know, expect there to be perhaps like a, a language miscommunication or something like that. Because when I speak in Spanish or Urdu, I mean, with my Urdu tutor, he laughs so much sometimes because I literally translate phrases out from English to Urdu and he's like, you can't say it that way. It doesn't sound right. <laughs> so I can only imagine English as a second language. If, if you're saying something and you mean it, you transliterate it in, from your language, mm -hmm. it may sound a little strange in English. But, you know, going to your question, um, you, you do take it the, a different approach. Your lens is different. It's softened. Mm -hmm. It's not harsh. You're inviting questions and you may actually want to ask questions knowing that they may not be sharing everything with you. Mm -hmm. But before you even get there, you know, it's it's all the subconscious things we're doing, I think, is being mindful of what kind of space we're creating for our clients. Is it safe? 
mm-hmm. you know, are we setting up an opportunity to speak to our clients in a, in a place where maybe their family members might not want to be there or shouldn't be there because mm-hmm. they're not being as free with you? There's so many things in a multicultural caseload, I feel like, that, that are different, um, but they can really help a case along. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be missing a lot of facts and a lot of connection with your client if you're just not listening. And I wonder, too, uh, how like judges might be able to integrate coming from a place of curiosity into their pro se parties that uh, appear mm-hmm. in front of them, right? Um, and so that's a really interesting thing that I feel like um, a very interesting approach that I feel like isn't employed as often as it should be, especially given the multicultural aspect and representation in our communities. Right. And I think that there's some barriers. There's some literal barriers. I think you've got an interpreter if they're in the courtroom, for example. And I always run into the stop talking so fast counsel. I Mm -hmm. need a minute to translate or interpret. Sorry. I had to learn the difference between translation and interpretation. And they're very different. And you do not want to be on the bad side of a translator. (laughs) By calling them an interpreter and vice versa. I think one translation is for literal translation. Like word for word. Word for word. And then interpretation is, uh, interpreting is life. And it's like, I believe that interpreting is not translating, but giving the concepts more than like a word for word, Right. right? I think I got lectured by an interpreter at the United Nations. That's why I've been trying to be very careful about this. I was in law school. Um, But either way, you've got a lot of things going on in the courtroom, right? It's almost chaotic. So I can understand in that, you know, you're trying to understand the facts so that you can make conclusions in your orders and you've got an interpreter and you've got to manage the litigants emotions and then if counsel are not getting along that's a lot you know Mm -hmm. that's a lot but even in that chaos I think slowing down might be the best thing to do yeah and I think some of the best judicial officers that I've been in front of especially with these multicultural cases that's where they're the most effective is to say let's all just calm down for a minute and I'm going to listen to this side first, and then I'm going to listen to this side, and this sh- nobody should be rushed here. If we need more time, we'll make, that, we'll make that time happen. Those are the cases that I think have had the best outcomes, even if they went to hearing. And I feel like that particular approach that you're talking about as well is the judicial officer taking control of their courtroom and right. setting right. these expectations and saying this is what we're going to do and this is the way we're going to go about it. Right. And I think you can do that very easily, um, even if it seems to be overwhelming with, you know, so many layers in in the multicultural cases. But um, it's possible. I think I'm trying to learn that. That's my new mantra for 2021, I think, is just to slow down. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The walks help. You know, the walks help. You are an avid walker. (laughs) Thanks Um, Thanks to COVID, yeah. But I also, when you're talking about slowing down, I know that art is a big outlet for you mm-hmm. and painting and drawing and yeah I mean pre-COVID traveling as well oh I know I know even with my law firm I was able to manage uh, the goal was four to six countries a year and I I know and I managed two years to do it now part of that's cheating because you know you start at one country and then you hop to the neighboring country like Thailand to Cambodia that is to be not on. cheating. I, I still think it's kind of cheating. But <laughs> if, you, if you counted 
just visiting the airport, I would say that that's cheating. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I took a status conference from Panama City once. That was really funny. <laughs> I think the judge realized I was in a different country, but he was he was supportive of it. I thought that was great. Um, yeah, traveling was a big thing for me. And, you know, I incorporated art in, into traveling, too. So I love to go to meet up and find the drawing meetups. Um, and a lot of these are just open live sessions with models and you get to meet all the art local artists. They just pile in like Barcelona. They had wine and cheese and it was like 10 euro to get in and you would just draw for like three hours. So I love doing that when I travel. I, I did that in Tokyo, but that was the most intimidating. Um, I felt like I was a kindergartner compared to everybody in there. <laughs> Japanese artists are amazing, even on a meetup group, but yeah, art is my way of slowing down. Um, and uh, I was going yeah. to ask you too, because during your travels, and I also want to dig more into mm -hmm. art because you are an incredible artist. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, I know that you're saying that you felt like a kindergartner with these Japanese You artists, had to see but... those. I was like, I'm just going to pack up and go. What was this, 20,000 yen? You can have that. <laughs> but the reason why I want to stop you is because with your travels, and you kind of touched on this with the meetup groups, mm -hmm. but I feel like you make these into such amazing experiences. Like you're able to find the locals and a community and just really engage and be a part of mm -hmm. that community for the time that you're there you're not a tourist like you're actually immersing yourself in the country that you're in I, I think that's the best part and you know what I think that goes back to the identity you know mm -hmm. like I've always been that way I've always wanted to know and I've always been curious and and that is finding the people that nobody wants to talk to really <laughs> you know the tourists don't talk to the locals which I think is ironic but um yeah I love it I you know one of my favorite memories recent memories was um I just I kind of threw a virtual dart on the map and booked trips to New Zealand not Australia <laughs> New Zealand and I show up and, and I messed this up because it was supposed to be for my birthday which is in August that's their winter which I missed that part right. of, of world geography in high school I don't know um but I got there and it actually turned out to be great because it was their winter so there are no tourists and there's a lot of locals and there's a meetup group about uh philosophy they're just philosophers they're kiwi philosophers <laughs> nicole and they're waiting at some obscure turkish cafe on one of the main streets in auckland it's raining it's terrible and i'm like i'm gonna go to this and the, the theme of the night was war and peace i'm the only american there <laughs> so of course everybody's asking me you know about bush's wars and you know all this stuff and i'm like you know i i'm not appointed diplomat for that administration <laughs> but I will play devil's advocate if you'd like me to um but those memories are important you know mm -hmm. and I think that connecting with people is important because you know it, it really does come back to my practice too mm -hmm. um I think being able to connect with people inviting conversation you know creating a, a you know a space of trust and creative you know thinking and all of that can help people through their problems too Absolutely. So you've talked about these art meetups that you've mm -hmm. done in different countries. And how far does art go back for you? When did you first, do you recall your oh, first yeah. drawing or your first painting? And you were like, hey, that's pretty good. I should keep doing this. 
I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I will. She's on my Facebook. She's one of my Facebook friends. I found all my elementary school teachers and added them. Um, I think my third grade teacher told me, she goes, I knew you were going to become a lawyer. Really? (laughs) So I don't know what I said in third grade, but um, (laughs) Miss Callahan, I remember in first grade, um, I was at Cimarron Elementary School, and I just, I remember very vividly that I got possessed during our drawing sessions, and I was also obsessed with Clifford the Red Dog at the time. So... I just started drawing him. It was just freestyling it. And I, I just distinctly remember she came over and she's a very tall lady, but also I was probably like three feet tall. So everything <laughs> was tall. And she looked over and she's like, Maha, did you draw that? And it was just the surprise in her voice. And I said, and I, I don't recall even answering her because I was so obsessed with coloring and finishing it. And she goes, this is really good. And Ever since she said that to me, I carried around a little spiral notebook and I would just create cartoon characters in it. And I did that probably through the end of middle school. And I had all these crazy characters that I created. I mean, some of them were kind of stupid, like Alley Cat. Like, it's fine. It was was he, Alley Cat related to Smelly Cat? No, it was just he was an Alley Cat. But then I named him Alley, which that was like as creative. See, sometimes I'm not creative, Nicole. I mean, I think that's pretty creative for an elementary schooler. I I think I was in middle school by then, so I I don't know about that. I still find it impressive. (laughs) But just to let you know, I won second place in the Burger King coloring contest. Oh, I remember those. When I was in like fourth grade. So I got one of those for King Supers. Who was the, who were Scrooge's nephews? Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Yes, at least in the United States. Do you know they have different names around the world? I never thought about I, that. I, it would make sense, right? It's like McDonald's mm-hmm. is different in Tokyo than it would be here. Um, don't try it in Tokyo. It's disgusting. Anyway, it's disgusting <laughs> anywhere, I think. But yeah, like I did, that's going back to what you're saying. Like that was my first memory. And um, I just kept going with art. I, I I made the decision to go to law school or else I would have gone to art school. So I'm, I'm kind of making up for that by doing adult um, art workshops. I just mm-hmm. finished up a wonderful... Uh, evening it was an eight-week evening course on digital portraiture and procreate so um yeah that's that's a really big thing for me I don't I don't know maybe I'll retire early and open up a (laughs) studio in Santa Fe or something that would be amazing and the thing that I've learned from you because I despite my second place finishing in the Burger King coloring contest which which is Nicole it's really it's did you get one of those cups like um, the difference between first and second prize were vastly different. The first prize got like a free trip to Disneyland. Oh, wow. And second place, I got like a free Happy Meal. Okay. Like, the discrepancy was that's pretty big. Gigantic. <laughs> but anyways, I, I have no knowledge, no um, background in any type of art art medium art form well i got you those art supplies for I know, christmas I so know. you better start figuring out how to use those no <laughs> there's fair. no right way there's no right way to do it just like the parenting manual you just gotta wing it <laughs> but the thing that i find so interesting is that there are all these different forms of mm-hmm. art that i didn't even know existed like you're talking about portraiture and digital portraiture oh yeah i mean yeah. it's more than just painting and drawing like 
I mean, these days, I've not these days, I'd say a couple years, I've going back to the, you know, the essay that I wrote, um, that was a writing retreat to India. And it was part of me rediscovering my identity, I think, separate from my family. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's come about from that journey is this, um, I guess, unusual or eccentric, I like eccentric more, um, obsession with the Mughal dynasty. I don't know if you know about the Mughals. I don't. The Mughals came down from, uh, it was Turkey and Persia and the Mongols. And they're kind of like this really eclectic mix. And they actually ruled um, most of India for a very long time until the British showed up. Um, and they had their own style of paintings, miniature paintings, um, and very decadent Islamic art as well. Actually, the Taj Mahal is from the Mughal dynasty, from Shah Jahan. Mm. Um, so I incorporate them into my writing. A lot of my short stories are based off of Mughal dynasty, like legends and stories. But the art that I've been exploring recently for portraitures has been Mughal inspired huh yeah um so there are there's so many different kinds of art i learn about it every day some stuff i had no idea like for printmaking and ceramics and basket weaving is a thing <laughs> i it could go on for i mean humans are just so incredibly creative do your clients know that you're the accomplished artist and writer that you are I don't I don't think they do. Some of them will find my social media and then they're like, hey, Maha, I know you you published a children's book and I bought it for my kid and this will be in the middle of mediation or something. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was the worst print version of my book ever, which is why you should always let publishers handle <laughs> your stuff. But well, certainly I didn't know this, so I will be adding something it was to my humanist, Amazon card. <laughs> yeah, it was a humanist children's book called The Book of Big Questions. I just need to reprint it. I'm such a um, I'm just so type A about this stuff. I think they used the wrong paper and it should have been glossy instead of matte. But we can save that for another podcast episode. <laughs> The horror. Yes, the horror. <laughs> yes, yes. So tell me about your type A, because you, you referenced it just now. And I feel like in most minds, type A and creativity don't exactly align with one another. They don't. Um, I've taken a lot of these personality assessment tests or whatever. Well, we did that for Cobalt, too. We did, yeah. Um, I ended up being quadrimodal, so I was actually kind of squarely all four of the major really? personality. Yeah, and I, I was not expecting that. I think people thought I was going to be all creative, conceptual. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. I, I have no idea. It might just have been the result of having to manage my own law firm. You know, the accounting, the billing, the marketing, the, all of that stuff really requires you to be organized but I don't I don't think that way it's weird my mind meanders into something else when I'm doing creative work so for our listeners um Maha and I were both a part of the Colorado Bar Association leadership training programs in different years cobalt and as a part of that you take this personality test and there's four different quadrants mm -hmm. um, which are social analytical structural and conceptual conceptual right and so being, I mean, I was very clearly red, which was social. Yeah, I, I could was see that. Like 99% red. Like it was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, mine came back quadrimodal. I was all four. That's pretty rare. It's so weird. And I think that would explain maybe why I loved law so much. I, I mean, I enjoy writing a good appellate brief. 
it's weird. You can get into this zone analytically and have this whole Westlaw trail of God knows how many hours, um, which they track you, by the way. And then the rep comes back and it tries to tell you all about what you've been doing for three months, which I think is kind of stalkerish. But um, I have that part of me. Mm-hmm. And then I love the social part. I'm very social, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and conceptual, like, you know, when I go on these walks, I just think I'm like, that would be a really interesting short story to write. But the weird part is, is that yes, you're quadrimodal, but like, you're very good at things. Like, it's not like, you know, a jack of all trades where you're not really concentrated in one area. Nicole, I'm not good. And it's chemistry. I flunked out of chemistry. (laughs) Well, that's good to know. (laughs) I mean, yeah, don't ask me for, or medicine too. That was a very Asian expectation, if (laughs) I can say bluntly, um, to go to medical school. So I was pre-med and and at CU Boulder. And then when all this stuff happened with my family, I just dropped out of pre-med. I was like, oh, that's a silver lining (laughs) i don't have to do biochem anymore um and then i did international relations instead but um yeah it is weird i don't i couldn't explain my mind to you but i'm just but you do a lot of things too so it's not just me (laughs) i do a lot of things but like am i as good in something in multiple things as you are at drawing and lawyering and appellate briefing anyways it's not a contest but i'm just saying (laughs) i don't know if i'm that good at appellate briefing <laughs> but that's not true but <laughs> I think that you know the other thing is is if, if there's a, a passion component there's a curiosity component and then there's practice right if I really like something you know for me that's writing and, and art that's why I take the workshops that's why I have the one-on-ones that's why I have the mentors that are you know one I have a manuscript a short story manuscript that's um through Lighthouse that I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going it's gonna go through a lot of scrutiny, right? And you have to sit down and you have to rewrite these drafts and you have to take supplementary workshops on, you know, beginning, middle and ends and all sorts of stuff. And if I think if you're committed, it's not about having a natural talent. You know? Mm-hmm. Some of the, the most successful people out there are the ones that really started pretty terribly you know (laughs) but they really had the passion and the curiosity and the commitment and that's how they get ahead of the people that think that they can just you know surpass on their talent alone I think that's really true too because you see um how much hard work and hopefully that hard work is enjoyable right it's something that you enjoy to do so it doesn't feel like work but putting in a lot of those hours is truly how you get good at something Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the goal right is to find something that doesn't feel like work if you can tell me what that is Nicole just let me know (laughs) because law is not that (laughs) I don't know of anybody who has not had at least a couple days a week where they were questioning why they went to law school but you know at the end of the day I do think it's rewarding too right like to have the clients Um, you know you and I both got the the 5280 this Top year lawyers, yeah. yeah and I thought one of the sweetest things was a, a client that I had from three or four years ago she she scanned my page in and sent it to me and she's like oh my god my lawyer is in 5280 <laughs> she goes I'll never forget what you did for my family Aww. and those are the moments that really mm-hmm. are are what keep you moving forward and you know remind me of my oath you know that's why I do sliding scale is I think that that was that part of the oath when I took it I really meant it you know you have to find the joy in that work too 
Well, I think we are about out of time. I know we could talk forever. We do talk forever. <laughs> we do. We actually <laughs> we do. Just, don't just for the it. record, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but thank you, thank you for taking the time to be here to sit with me in a more formalized setting, yeah. six feet apart. And... We are six feet apart. If anyone's wondering, <laughs> and just taking the time to to talk and to chat and yeah anything for you nicole i really enjoyed this i did too thank you thanks a special thanks to the colorado bar association and the denver bar association for supporting promoting and amplifying these voices in honor of asian pacific american heritage month my name is nicole spraza and thanks again for tuning in